Welcome to Guerrilla Radio, recorded April 19th, 2023. Well, last week, Russia placed sanctions on more than 300 Canadians, barring the mostly government apparatchiks and media personalities' access to the country. It was, the Russian Foreign Ministry said, in hopes of, quote, encouraging those on the blacklist to change their behavior. Wide-ranging sanctions policies, including those Canada aims at Russia and eastern Ukraine, are now so common, Canada alone sanctioning a couple dozen countries and thousands of individuals and entities, they have threatened the world's economic system, or so argues the recently published book Sanctions, a wrecking ball in a global economy. John Philpott is a Montreal-based defense attorney in international criminal law, long active in Palestinian and African support organizations and campaigns to free political prisoners Mungwan Joe and Alex Saab. Philpott is too an executive board member of Just Peace Advocates and the Sanctions Kill Coalition. John will be one of three speakers touring the Canadian book release starting tonight in Hamilton. John Philpott, in the first half and last week, France's constitutional court allowed some of President Emmanuel Macron's pension reforms, notably the most contentious one, an age eligibility rise. Organized labor there, who've rallied tens of thousands into the streets against the move over the last month, vows now to bring in a general strike on the workers' holiday, May Day. Meanwhile, Macron's address Monday was delivered to a cacophony of pots and pans, a regular casserolada banging outside the walls of power, where the workers chanted, if Macron won't listen to us, we won't listen to him. Dr. Pablo Uziel is a postdoc at the Université de Québec à Montréal, whose area of study is the European Union, political, legal, and economic integration from above and below, and settler colonialism and Canadian society. Pablo Uziel and we, Emmanuel, Paris is burning in the second half. But first, John Philpott and Sanctions, the hegemon's desperate bid to hold back the tides of change. Welcome back to the program, John. It's nice to be with you. Well, John, to begin with now, who's behind this book, Sanctions, A Wrecking Ball in a Global Economy? Um, I can make a joke. The USA is, and the Europe is, are primarily behind <laughs> it because they caused these, they're implementing sanctions and therefore people have to resist. And I think your question is more related is who is working on this resistance. And um, so there's, there's a, um, the resistance to sanctions is a growing issue with respect to this book there's a group which was formed in the usa and has incorporated canadians also recent in the last year or two called sanctions kill which is a um, umbrella group of organizations in the usa and canada who have been studying sanctions and holding webinars on sanctions, particularly during the COVID period where everything we did was almost webinars, as you as you know. And they've done a lot of work. We have a website called Sanctions Kill, and um, we meet every couple of weeks. And the, the, the major issue is to explain to uh, the Western population and elsewhere, of course, that sanctions are a form of warfare. And we know that when you have a hot war, like the war in Iraq, where they killed hundreds of thousands of people in 2003, it was preceded by sanctions, terrible sanctions following the first war in Iraq. And the figures are that 
500,000 children died because of the United States, United States sanctions on Iraq. And Madeleine Albright said it was worth it. So this is an example in the recent history of the devastating effects of sanctions and the will by the U.S. government to impose terrible economic measures. The best term probably would be unilateral coercive measures. And they're imposing it on countries which do not fall into line. There's many motives and reasons for which the USA and on a secondary level, the Europe imposes sanctions, but the purpose is to impose their point of view and in doing so, reduce the people to servitude and in many cases, extreme suffering. And I could explain in very simple terms, the question of the legality. You don't have to be a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. You don't have to be a lawyer to understand. All you have to do is, um, jokingly, I'm saying, use your brain a little bit and look at a bit of history. The United Nations Charter, which is the really the rules-based order, which should govern international relations, has a fundamental principle, is the sovereign equality of nations. And you cannot intervene in the internal affairs of another country, which means that, and I'm now tongue-in-cheek saying, Algeria, for example, I'm not, Algeria is not relevant to this, cannot intervene in the internal affairs of the United States and say, you, uh, United States, Biden or Trump, you, um, if you don't abolish all racism, we will impose sanctions on you and you cannot do business and you will, you're, you cannot use your banks, um, our banks to do business. Now, this is obviously a joke because Algeria doesn't have that power, but um, it would come down to that. Algeria could say to the U.S., you cannot, uh, if you don't abolish racism in your country, you cannot do business uh, with our banks and our banks control the world. Now, when you go back to the reality of it, one of the most important sanctions systems used in uh, our recent lives is, is the embargo against Cuba, which has been in force is it not 62 years the Cuba has been under U.S. sanctions? Well, of course, everybody, well, maybe not everybody, but people of a certain vintage may remember the infamous Leslie Stahl 60 Minutes interview with Madeleine, the late Madeleine Albright, uh, where she was asked point blank in a moment of media uh, clarity uh, about the uh, sanctions policy. We hardly ever hear about it otherwise, but sanctions are even, are much older than that in the American context, going back to before the second war. The Russians right now say, well, they were provoked into uh, acting to protect the people of the eastern portion of Ukraine. The 
R2P or the responsibility to protect said to have emerged from Canada is often invoked when it comes to sanctions and interfering in the affairs of other countries. Uh, Is there no um, situation in your view, John, legally at least, where R2P or or this intervention can be justified? The Security Council, under the present legal system, Chapter 7, can impose sanctions on a country if there's a threat to peace and it could be legitimate and international relations as we hope they would be it is conceivable that uh, the security council could impose sanctions on a country like Well, I don't want to give an example because I don't know of an example. However, in the real world, well, there was a slip. The sanctions on North Korea, which got through the Security Council, I don't agree with them. They have a certain certain legality because there was an abstention by Russia and China imposing some sanctions on North Korea because of its nuclear program. But... I know that in sanctions kill, we don't agree with them, but the question of legality is not necessarily uh, an issue. However, in the real world now, with Russia and China as members of the Security Council with the right of veto, it really comes down to, and we're talking, let's say, in 2020 or 2022 or 2023, as we are now, the sanctions are unilateral coercive measures imposed by the United States and they really hurt. And for example, a country like Syria, the issues, they cannot obtain adequate medical materials. They cannot, the Syrian scientists cannot even attend scientific conferences because I understand that Zoom will not allow them to participate. And so um, they cannot reconstruct after 10 years of horrible war imposed by the jihadist, which actually are pro-US destabilizing forces against Syria. And Syria is in in very bad condition. And so they cannot rebuild their country because you cannot borrow, lend money. And any con- any company which dares to do business with Syria can face the wrath of the United States and banks can have, have incredibly large fines against them. Which but does, is this is this would this though not be legal if the Amer- if it wasn't America say because of their unique position in the world uh, and I'm not talking about exceptionalism necessarily but if if Canada well and Canada does follow suit but if another country uh, independently said well the practices of a neighbor or a distant country are so odious to them that they refuse to do business with them. Uh, would that not be fair enough? I mean, without this, you know, impelling neighbors and friends to do the same thing, but to impel at least national entities to to isolate them, as in the case of, say, South Africa or even a a BDS type movement. That's another question. Where is it where countries 
are, um, it's basically not governments, but it's uh, local organizations which say don't buy SodaStream. Um, yeah, this is boycott, divestment. Yeah, and, boycott, uh, divestment, sanctions. But that's sanctions, not. Um, but yeah, I, I don't want to confuse the issue. But yeah, but a, a nation state adopting a BDS uh, uh, strategy, say, yes. not to confuse the issue. Yes. And, I mean, and, is there not a is there not a legal ground? I mean, can a country, if a country has sovereignty, certainly it would have sovereignty just to say, course. well, we don't like what you're doing, and we're not going to have anything to do with you. Of course, they can do that. But when the United States does that to mm -hmm. impose its control on a country of the generally of a global south, it's now changing. Of course, um, it becomes an arm, a form of war, which is illegal and there's been a, a lot of um, uh, there's there's many examples for example what they have done to venezuela is they have imposed draconian sanctions on many parts of venezuela's life banking getting spare parts for the oil industry preventing venezuela from exporting its oil and it's led to a, a terrible degradation in the life, the salary, the income of Venezuela, the airports are empty, the hospitals do not have enough um, medical supplies, and it's a, a conscious aim by the United States to reduce the living standards of, the, of Venezuela in order to force a regime change, and these are unilateral coercive measures. And what we in Sanctions Kill are trying to uh, explain to, for example, in the US and Canada, because Canada is also against Venezuela, is that this, these are crimes, and Venezuela has pointed out the illegality of this, and they've talked about the massive suffering, which is the suffering in Venezuela is the equivalent to the suffering required for to be called a crime against humanity. So they have made a complaint to the International Criminal Court, um, which seems to be put on a shelf somewhere and is not advancing very uh, successfully. Um, we recently saw, for one thing, <laughs> the prosecutor of the uh, International Criminal Court who I actually know because of I, I'm a defense lawyer at the in different uh, international courts, has still trying to maintain criminal charges, investigations against Venezuela for violations of electoral laws and preventing people from participating in elections. Well, I but think what, indifferent might have been a, a Freudian slip of the tongue there because the American uh, America has in turn ignored not a, not signed on to recognize the international court and threatened and sanctioned members of the court itself. For sure. Is, is this Elena Duhan you're talking about, the UN no. special Well, that's, Elena Duhan wrote the reports about the suffering in Venezuela and in Zimbabwe, for example. But uh, I guess the, the international criminal court, I was going to make a joke about them because, well, jokes, uh, jokes are, are painful, but they show the real reality is that with respect to Ukraine, they are running to Ukraine to try and impose, to, to lay charges against Russia. And with such uh, urgency and such uh, a desire to, 
to punish uh, the political enemies of the West. Obviously, I won't even comment on the absurd nature of the uh, charges against Mr. Putin, but I'm showing the double standard of the International Criminal Court, and I guess I'm sort of suggesting that any solution to the issue of sanctions will not be born of the International Criminal Court. There's an interesting situation in Zimbabwe, for example. There's been terrible suffering and degradation of the economy of Zimbabwe for the last 20 years since Zimbabwe deigned to apply land reform against the former colonialists who still maintained much of the land after independence in 1980. And the Southern African countries have had an international day of opposition to sanctions on the 25th of October every year in the southern part of Africa, which is an example of one of the ways of resisting sanctions. Um, The resistance to sanctions is extremely important and there are many ways to oppose sanctions. Here in the West, our job is to convince our governments to abandon the sanctions policy for all the many reasons that they are wrong. If you just tune in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm speaking with John Philpott. John's a Montreal-based defense attorney in international criminal law, and he's been long active in Palestinian and African support organizations and campaigns to free political prisoners, uh, among one Joe and Alex Saab, for example. Uh, Philpott is, too, an executive board member of Just Peace Advocates and Sanctions Kill Coalition. Uh, and John will be one of three speakers touring the Canadian book release, the book that we're talking about today, Sanctions, a Wrecking Ball in a Global Economy. Um, John, I'll play devil's advocate here, uh, as uh, perhaps Hugo Chavez would say, uh, (laughs) Selfura. The sanctioners say that their goal, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, sometimes it's it's stated explicitly, but it's understood is to foment uh, citizen uprisings and revolution and even civil war, all on the aims of regime change to uh, a more pliable, perhaps, uh, government in said country. But their defenders say, well, this is an alternative to outright war, and they're is a a humanitarian case to be made that that fewer people will be hurt. It will prevent civilian deaths that you would see in in warfare. So, again, back to the responsibility to protect doctrine, uh, loosely defined, that there is a, a, a standing, although they would admit it's outside the literal spirit of Westphalia, there there is an argument to be made for it. Do they have a leg to stand on legally in that respect? Well, you, you've you've raised the uh, very good question which people use, and the answer is that it's unacceptable, and sanctions can often can lead to sit, situ, situations which are worse than direct war. Um, for example, uh, the U.S. bombed Syria. Is it? two or three times in April of several years, 17, 2017, 2018, they bombed Syria, but the sanctions have reduced the living standards of Syria terribly. And I'm, I wonder whether the suffering of Syria under the sanctions, since they basically won their war against the jihadists, is there been more suffering 
by sanctions in Syria than there have by the jihadists. I don't have those figures, um, but Syrians are dying and they died during COVID because they couldn't get enough, getting enough uh, medicine. So sanctions are an alternate to war for illegitimate purpose. It's a form of, of committing war against a country generally of the global south. And so it's not a legitimate alternative. It's very well, important now to well, understand the change. Right now, the sanctions are not, or have been shown to not be a very successful tool. And we can look at Russia where the sanctions have not worked the Ill illegitimate sanctions against Russia have not worked because the Russian economy is booming and the U.S. banks are cracking up. And they even want, now for example, they want to put sanctions against Hungary because Hungary is buying Russian oil. So, and Janet Yellen said yesterday that sanctions have undermined the dollar. And so <laughs> the sanctions are now not particularly successful but I think it would be premature to cry victory because the suffering, uh, for example, in Cuba, the, the situation in Cuba is, is quite difficult. The suffering in Venezuela, which is palpable, the difficulties in Syria, Zimbabwe are, are really serious. I understand, and I don't even want to be quoted, but I understand that Iran is finding a way to bypass sanctions and do business they have a huge internal market so they may they may be escaping sanctions in part but our duty uh, as progressives in north america is to denounce the attempts by our governments to impose their will on the internal policies of uh, countries whose policies are not in agreement with the United States. It's broadening up so much now because they're using them against Russia. They're probably going to use them against China. There's still some, there's a lot of economic measures against China, for example, chips and uh, technology. I understand, and I'm not an expert on Chinese, uh, anti-Chinese sanctions. I understand that they're, they're not succeeding and that China is probably going to go around them and find a way to bypass them. So, Well, yeah, it's not just Iran that's getting around them. I mean, the, the American uh, uh, countering America's adversaries through Sanctions Act, uh, CATSA, is already focused on its allies in India, Turkey, and Pakistan, where they've, uh, it seems that they've made sure that Imran Khan won't uh, be able to take power because he's seen as unfriendly. And this is all just related to Russia. And we've also seen that Germany is buying Russian oil, but it's just making a very circuitous route th through third countries. So the, it, it's costing Germans a lot more. And there's a lot of collateral economic and humanitarian damage done to places that have nothing to do with this, like the African nations that have haven't been able to get uh, uh, grain, for example, from Ukraine and from uh, Russia itself. So it, it, a lot of people are hurt by this, to be sure. And Canada, John, and you and I are both Canadians, have, have taken up the cudgel with enthusiasm, a growing enthusiasm, where this country has sanctions now on a couple dozen countries. And it, sure. it seems they seem to become more and more um, tool of first resort. Uh, John, we're fast out of time, but uh, can you reiterate now that the schedule of, well, first of all, uh, uh, the book's uh, 
uh, rollout in Canada because this book has been yes. released in other places, and uh, your role in it. Fine, I'm I'm a member of Sanctions Kill. I'm an author of one article on in the book. We are having a a, a meeting tonight in Hamilton at 7 p.m. We're having a meeting tomorrow night in Ottawa, and we're having a meeting on Friday night in Montreal. And we sent you the the link to the live stream, which you can make available to your listeners. And you'll hear the meeting in the live stream on in Montreal on Friday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, Eastern time. Yeah, and that's tonight at the uh, Mickel or Michael Coffee Company yes. in Hamilton uh, yes. at 7 p.m. For those of you in Hamilton, uh, Ottawa, Thursday the 20th at 7 at Happy Goat. And yes. Montreal at the Centre de Travailleux Immigrants. That's terrible French. I'm, I apologize to everybody in Quebec for that. <laughs> That's at 7 p.m. as well in Montreal. Well, John, I I don't have in front of me that the link to that live stream. Do you have it written in front of uh, you? I, uh, Ken Ken Stone just sent it to you by email. Ah, uh, here it is. Uh, it, I've got it at tinyurl.com wrecking ball webinar. Um, if you go to the https uh, colon uh, double slash tinyurl.com slash wrecking ball webinar, you'll find that or. Uh, Search online the, the book uh, title, uh, Sanctions, A Wrecking Ball in a Global Economy, and you'll find links, I'm sure, to other things. Uh, John, there's there's a ton more. I've got notes all over the place on stuff we didn't cover, including your article and the other articles that you co-wrote with some of the, the other fine people on here and uh, other stuff that I wanted to get to, but we don't have time today. But I thank you for thank coming you very on much. the show. Thank you very much. Let's keep this discussion of sanctions alive and very nice to talk to you again. Well, and especially in the Canadian context where it's not sure. talked about nearly enough. I want everyone else to stay here because I'm going to go to Montreal to speak with Pablo Uziel and talk a little bit about what's going on in France and his native Spain after the break. Thanks again, John. Thank you very much. Good night. Escape the narrative. Radio. And welcome back to Guerrilla Radio. Well, last week, France's constitutional court allowed some of President Emmanuel Macron's pension reforms, notably the most contentious one, an age eligibility rise. Organized labor there, who've rallied tens of thousands into the streets against the move over the last month, vows now to bring in a general strike on the workers' holiday, May Day. Meanwhile, Macron's address Monday was delivered to a cacophony of pots and pans, a regular casserolado banging outside the walls of power where the workers chanted, if Macron won't listen to us, we won't listen to him. Dr. Pablo Uziel is a postdoc at the Université de Québec à Montréal, whose area of study is the European Union, political, legal, and economic integration from above and below, and settler colonialism and Canadian society. His book, Democracy Here and Now, The Exemplary Case of Spain, chronicles the birth of the M15 movement against draconian government austerity measures and the rise of authoritarianism there and across the Western world. Pablo now divides his time between uh, Montreal and his native Catalonia. Welcome back to the program, Pablo. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me here. It's always well, it's a pleasure. Always 
Well, it's always my pleasure to speak with you. It's been too long already. I think almost half a year since we last spoke. So, Pablo, yes, Paris is burning. Uh, so the next incendiary question must be, I suppose, will the rest of Europe be set alight as well? <laughs> That's such a big question. But, uh, uh, well, I, I would, I think my take on the current situation in Europe is that um, things are, are brewing uh you know disenchantment is brewing i mean it's been years of disenchantment brewing and certain movements appearing in different places at different times all with similar uh demands for for more democratic for more democrat democratic uh governments so they're basically democratizing movements and um what we're seeing in france you can. It's interesting, right? Because we're talking about uh, all these demonstrations, and you know, uh, all these demonstrations happening uh, after a new law is passed, which says that um, people who retire will have to retire at 64 instead of 62, which is two years more. And and actually, if you look at the EU and you look at the retirement age, um, it's actually Greece and France which have half the lowest retirement ages. Well, France has just changed that. Um, so I think that it's not, I mean, it's not so much about the policy and how, uh, but more about how it's been done, which shows kind of a, a response by elites in, elites in government in Europe. Um, France is this the example we're looking at right now, but it shows how um, elites just don't really listen to people. No, I mean, Macron was asking 100 days of calm and unity. And as you pointed out, um, people are saying, well, Macron won't listen to us. We will not listen to him. Um, there's this uh, I was just reading this morning about um, the man they call the French Spider-Man who climbs up buildings. He just climbed up a 38 story building in Paris and he said, um, I'm here to tell Emmanuel Macron to come back to Earth by climbing with no safe with no safety net, which I thought was pretty indicative of the kind of uh, response people have towards their politicians. So where is this heading in Europe? Um, I mean, it will depend in a way on the deterioration of the economic situation in Europe, and we can talk more about this. But I think that would be what would determine whether uh, Europe lights up or not. Yeah, well, Macron's not climbing without a net. He's got a, a safety cordon, a blue safety cordon. I, I'm watching uh, coverage from Twitter on the streets from France and various cities. Uh, the police are especially brutal. Those guys with the blue uh, stripe on their helmet, I've forgotten the name of them, but they're sort of the shock troops of their uh, riot squads are particularly uh, uh, bad. And we saw the last time during the, the Gilets Jaunes, the people having their eyes shot out and so forth. And yet the, the French, God bless them, are coming out. And it, it's not all these black clad types. I mean, I'm sure that there's there, they're there as well. And there is violence and, and uh, damage and fires and barricades and, and such, but it's the, it seems like a pretty rank and file citizenry from looking at the video that I've seen. And not only are they in the streets, but I guess for the older folks like me, where it might be too dangerous, I'm seeing a huge um, uh, manifestations in shopping malls and in stores and stuff where people are going in there with their casseroles and, and, and raising and whistles and just raising hell. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we 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 also have like a, a tradition of of this kind of disruption 
you know, if, as, as using the language that the state would use, right? Um, well, I think some activists would be comfortable with that too. But I mean, I think it's there's a tradition of that. And in a way, I think of this um, this event as, as one more symptom within a very um, sort of escalating battle between the people, if you like, and the elites, right? Um, at least that's how it's articulated. And I don't, I, and I see it as a continuity of the Gillette Jean, to be honest. Again, I see it as a continuity in the sense that the issues that were being addressed by the Gillette Jean are still the underlying issues here, right? In this case, it's materialized with this concrete uh, tension, but it's about, it really is about how, um, how uh, wealth is being distributed and redistributed in the Western world and in the in in this particular European country, right? So while the, while Macron is putting out the the pension reform, he's also uh, incrementing uh, exponentially the, the the military expenditure of France, right? And this is all to do with the with the war in Ukraine. At least this recent escalation in investment in military is is obviously a direct consequence of the Ukrainian war, which is why I thought I think I was suggesting before that um, what might happen in Europe will really deter will be, I think, at this stage determined by the economic situation, which if the Europe if the war in Ukraine continues, uh, will most likely uh, become worse and worse. And that's what I was referring to when I was saying, well, is the fire being lit in France going to spread to the rest of Europe? It seems like there's a there's a split. And, and France has always been more individualistic when it comes to the European Union than than most countries uh, there. They, they've they wanted to keep a, um, their own. They were they came in and out of NATO. They they want to keep their autonomy. They're, they jealously guard it. Even Macron, when he on his Chinese visit uh, last week. Uh, ruffled feathers within the the union and and confusion, I think, all around. I I talked to Diana Johnstone, who lives in Paris, an an American expat journalist who's lived there for 30 or more years now, uh, about what's going on in in France. And um, what she was talking about as far as militarizing, the militarization of France and the war, she says in France, the war is the Ukraine war against Russia is not even on the radar for mo- for almost anybody there. All they're talking about is this pension reform bill, which she says is much more complicated than just the 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 age rise, where she says hard, like less than a third of people over sixty are working or in the workforce anyway. But uh, there's, according to her, that economically the economic costs of the war haven't even registered yet and so we're seeing if those ever register in france i can't imagine because we're already seeing tens of thousands in the street and they're not you know just carrying putting flowers in the barrels of the police uh riot guns or anything yeah it's interesting this um this comment about um war not being in the radar i completely agree with you in the mainstream conversation the war is not in the radar um and that, I think, has to do predominantly with the, the way the framing, which has been very sophisticated and very, well, I don't know if sophisticated is the word, but it's been very effective of how to frame this war. So it, it almost became a war that you cannot, uh, you cannot censor, right? Because it's a war against the evil, um, the evil Putin, who is evil, you know? <laughs> but, uh, but also, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's not just uh, a, a war in Ukraine, by Ukraine with Russia. I mean, the latest leaks 
uh, are revealing that there has been elite uh, forces from numerous European and, and, the, and the United States. So that numerous European countries and the United States have been operating in, in Ukraine, which means that, you know, and we also saw the Seymour Hirsch, um, you know, expose on the, on the, on the pipeline. Um, and, and it's clear that uh, this is not a, a war between the Ukraine and Russia, it's a war between the West and and Russia and most likely soon to come China in some form or another. I think there is an economic war going on and there's definitely a lot of uh, military maneuvering happening around around uh, around China. And 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 I guess my point is I don't really I, I don't really know how much all these wars are going to escalate. But if they do escalate, I mean, clearly one of the populations that's suffering the most of the cost of war, apart from those actually having the war in themselves, is the European citizenry. And the European citizenry, at the same time, it's 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 uh, realizing that prices are going high, but it's not really connecting directly with the war effort. Or if it is, it's it's in a kind of um, yes, it's the war is might be a cause of this, but uh, this is a war that is a necessary war, and therefore. We have to put up with it, but I think that that kind of imaginary is going to wear thin as time passes, and 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 more and more families across Europe uh, find themselves unable to cover the cost of living of a, of a, of a, of their societies, which are increasingly becoming more and more expensive and less friendly to the working class. Well, I wonder too. Uh, I remember a figure, and I'm not sure if it's current. This is some years ago that that France get France's electricity is generated. Eighty percent of France's electricity was generated from nuclear, so they wouldn't be affected by gas as much as, say, Germany, which uh, I'm not sure what their numbers are, but it's certainly a lot less, especially in recent years, of nuclear power generation. And and being confu- confused about France, it, it, I think, may be the, the, just the normal position. That when uh, Macron went to China, and, and he's a part of this big bloc that's obviously antagonistic towards China and, and growing uh, more so every day, but he went to China and he said, and I'll quote him, he, he said, we don't want to get into to a block versus block kind of logic being Europe, we Europe shouldn't be caught up in a disordering of the world and crises that aren't ours. And this is what he said uh, to the Chinese. And, uh, so the, then uh, 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 van der Leyen or, or von der Leyen and, uh, and the Germans were tap dancing to try to, to reassure uh the EU that everybody was on the same page when it seems Macron, I, I don't know, he, he was maybe just going off script or something. He referred to, well, we don't want to follow American policy as a panic reflex. And we want to avoid becoming a vassal state of America. These are pretty bold statements for the French president. Yes, I mean, uh, yes, and I think we're going to hear, it is very bold and especially coming from France, but I think we're going to hear more kind of dissenting views as time progresses from different countries. And I think the one that surprises me the most is the, is the German case and the lack of, the lack of like any cri- 
critique from its government, right, towards this situation. Because, I mean, if you think, and this is, I'm, I'm going to go back to Seymour Hirsch because I think he says something very important. I mean, some people will treat him as a clown, but the truth is, I mean, I think his historical, uh, you know, uh, accuracy has proven, has proven quite remarkable. So I'm just going to go with the assumption that when he actually revealed all this information, he actually um, had pretty good sources, despite how the mainstream media might want to mock him. But um, so, so one of the things that he points that I think are very important that he points out that I think are very is very important is the fact that um, the Nord Stream pipeline is a pipeline that is owned half by the by the Germans and half by Russians, right? So um, in effect, if the U.S. did blow up that pipeline. It was actually committing an act of war against its own allies, <laughs> because it was, according to Seymour Hersh, the point of blowing up the pipeline was to guarantee that in case the winter got cold and Europe got cold feet about the war, they would not be able to go back to the pipeline and therefore, you know, uh, re slow down the war effort and make it almost um, uh, like impossible to actually fight that war with Russia. Now, uh, the fact that this is out there, the fact that it you know, you don't hear like like all the different like um, political voices are just pretty much silencing this. I think it's indicative of the times in which we are. Right? It's the double speak of Orwell. Right? This is the the real like it's it's quite impressive actually to watch. I mean, we've come to a point where you know, like people like Noam Chomsky are treated like clowns. You know, people like Simon Hirsch are treated like clowns. And the truth is, like, then if if all these people that have such a long history of denouncing and, and, and actually putting out information that most, you know, average citizens couldn't get to if it wasn't for people like them. I find quite surprising that we, we are able to, um, you know, brush them off like, like that with all the kinds of articles that they've been putting out, the kinds of comments about this war, the kinds of consequences for Europe, the, the kinds of consequences for a third world war, a nuclear war, right? Um, and then you add to that what we've been seeing in market turmoils, you know, I think of, for example, when the sanctions came out against Russia, the idea was to sink the Russian economy. I mean, of course, I don't have a good sense of what the Russian economy is like at this moment, because just like there is propaganda in the West, there is incredible propaganda in Russia as well. So I don't know. But what's clear is that the Ru Russia still hasn't collapsed. And and yet we're beginning to see banking failures, which have amounted to a huge bailout. If you really start putting together, right? We've had the UBS um, situation, the Credit Suisse. Sorry, um, we've had the banks in the United States, and 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 this has led to huge bailouts and also changing of the way that banks are protected. So again, going back to the pension reform, it's a pension reform at a time where the people on the street, the worker is being punished or asked to to put on, let's just say not punished, but let's say to put more time while, you know, the too big to fail crowd are getting more and more bailouts. This will lead to a serious conflict. Now, how that conflict will articulate itself, that's, I think, the biggest question, right? Again, will it be a, a, a conflict? that from the people's perspective, it articulates itself in a progressive manner, defending progressive values and defending a dem and, and democratizing in their process? Or will, will it be a turn to the far right where, you know, we become more and more regressive, more nationalist and, and, and everybody just defending their own kind? I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think both are possibilities. I think both are happening in some way. I just don't know which one is going to be the, the one 
if you like, that crystallizes in, in a huge manifestation or a huge event like the square occupations of 2011, that kind of thing. I, something of that kind, I think, is brewing. I just really don't know whether it will be on the right, right on the left or something different, you know, that well, we haven't even seen yet. Well, we're going to see it in Europe before we do in North America and especially in, in Canada, too. And another result, I mean, yeah, the the... Apparently, the Russian economy hasn't collapsed. The ruble is stronger than it was a year ago. And Russia has accelerated its move towards the east. And, and I read something recently that that put forward that it's not going to come back, that Russia has given up uh, investing its future with Western Europe altogether, which I guess is a win for the Americans after all. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Guerrilla Radio. I'm speaking today with Pablo Uziel. Pablo is a postdoc at the Université du Québec à Montréal. His area of study is the European Union, political, legal, and economic integration from above and below, and settler colonialism and Canadian society. His book is Democracy Here and Now, the Exemplary Case of Spain. Uh, about Spain, uh, last time we talked in August of last year, Pablo, you said, and I'll quote you uh, about the situation then, you said, we're on the Titanic and it's sinking, and the feeling is, let's just go to the beach <laughs> and you were saying that in, in terms of the, a kind of a, a political nihilism that was rising in Spain. Well, is that what's, what's going on there now? And I, I'm sure that they're looking over to France with great interest. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if in, if in France, the frustration uh, sort of uh, crystallizes in a sense with revolt and revulsion. Um, in Spain, the discontent at this particular conjuncture is crystallizing um, in, a, in a kind of apathy, right? There's a sort of general apathy or an, a, and the general exhaustion. I think the most exhausted, honestly, are the political parties. I think that the, the, the majority of the population, I mean, this is obviously generalizing, but I just, you know, in a, in a kind of um, trying to point to the sort of imaginary of what, you know, the center of politics looks like right now in Spain, it's, uh, it's just a space that is, it, you know, it's like a, a planet with no life, you know? You're sitting there, you're looking at it, you're trying to see if something moves, but everything is more of the same, right? We're exhausted of the corruption scandals that, that we've had to endure and the little um, the, the, the little repercussions that have come out of those for those who committed the corruption. We're exhausted by the pandemic. Uh, and I'm, I'm speaking in a we in a very loose sense, but, um, you know, there's an exhaustion from the pandemic there's a sort of indifference to the ukraine war except from well of course we have to defend it but that you know that's the that's that's actually quite a worrisome fact because um you know we haven't responded like that to the war in afghanistan or i mean the last war where there was a response in spanish population was the iraq war right after that there has been no response. There hasn't, and and for this one, there's a response, but it's very closely tied to, I would argue, racism, you know, and the fact that you know people in Ukraine are understood as white, like us. Therefore, and it's it's part of the discourse, right? It's not like me making this up. It's not even coming from the street. It's just listening to the European leaders and to the the the, the national leaders of Spain. But in terms of what is happening today, if you go to Spain. 
Um, I think, well, we have municipal elections, uh, regional elections coming up in a couple of months, I think, or a month. I can't remember the, the date right now. Um, so that that is kind of preparation for the general elections. It's May, May, tw May 28th. Uh, May 28th okay, is so the, the municipal and regional elections. And then I believe there's um, a general election towards the end of the year or, or early next year, right? Yeah, so December, that, December, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's so so basically these regional elections are the sort of build up to the to the to the national elections and um you're seeing movements, the 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 ruptures in Podemos and the sort of the left to the left of the Partido Socialista. Uh, it's it's in a decomposing mode. I think that's most of the criticism. That's more of more, most of the reading I, I I've come across from people within that space that it's decomposing that that um, it's kind of like if there was a moment of uh, of, a, of a high point of um, sort of uh, sort of new politics uh, as in institutional politics it was in 2014-15 and then since then it's just been decaying uh, the 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 um, the coalition between the socialists and Podemos is weak at this point. Um, uh, they're passing through some of the legislation that they were they were you know that they were promising to electorate. So in that sense, you know, you can't really you can't you can't really say it has been terrible. But I mean, I don't think it's from my perspective, I don't think it's carrying this strength to win a next election. I, I, I think that the next elections will probably be won by by the Partido Popular and with support of Vox. I think that's coming. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's one one more election away, but that space is building up strength. Well, and, and that, that, well. that marks a, a, a strong move to the right. For those that aren't uh, familiar with the parties in in Spain, which I would think was probably most people here, uh, uh, Podemos is the coalition government. They're left of center, maybe. I don't know, roughly like the NDP, would I be wrong in saying that? And they look like they're moving to something maybe even a little further right than Canada's Tories, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And then you have this Sumar, which is a sort of coalition of uh, disenchanted Podemos people and people, you know, from the municipal projects that have been developing over the last few years. And they're trying to come to an agreement with Podemos, but that's turning out to be quite a fight. It's all, the, the, the person that's leading Sumar is, the, is, is a minister in the, in the current coalition government, but she was the one that uh, Pablo Iglesias, when he left Podemos, kind of, um, you know, selected without any prior process of, of discussion with the, with the voters, right, with the, with the, uh, with the members of the party, so so I, I I think that space, in a sense, um, it's right now. Well, it's actually opening up the space for something beyond the the the, the institutional political space to articulate itself. In the sense that, that I think that the more the left is weakened in the institutional space, the more the history of Spain uh, tells us that when the, the, that happens, the mar Margins quickly begin to to become more prominent in the political space. So, so I think that although it looks very depressing, I hear a lot of depression. I was in a conference this morning uh, uh, organized by some academics in New York, and they were talking about the 59 movement, and they were talking about where we are now in Spain, and everybody sounded very um, depressed. and And I certainly relate to that. It's 
it's a very toxic political space right now in Spain. But I would argue that it's not just the political space because of the deterioration of our social contract, if you like. It, there's also a, a lot of um, um, this kind of like a, a, a lack of civics right now happening in the society. Like no one cares very much about the other. And I and I and I worry about that because it shows the signs of a, of a well, I guess then what I was what you were quoting that I said regarding the Titanic still holds for me today. Well, given the context of Spain's political history in the 20th century, that's a fright, a really frightening prospect. And, and we've seen that this kind of disengagement and nihilism uh, has led in the past to uh, a, a move to right wing nationalism and uh, the divide in the country. I don't know. We don't want to think who the next uh, who the next strongman might arise there and, and what that what that could mean. We're fast running out of time, uh, Pablo. But before we go, um, we in the past have often talked about Catalan. It's not uh, Catalan politics, Catalonia. Um, there, I haven't seen a lot of news about what's going on there lately, or about uh, Pablo Hassal, uh, the rapper who is, is still in prison, as far as I know, for uh, offending the king. Uh, Juan Carlos, of course, was driven out of the country, the, the victim of that offense. But he's planning a, a return trip any day now, I, I read, uh, to test the waters because uh, he, he's basically been a, a criminal on, on the lam from Spanish law. Can you uh, comment on those two things in our final couple minutes? Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because um, the king right now is arrived to Spain, I think, yesterday or this morning. Oh, he did. Oh, OK. There yeah, you go. so that's that's good, but he's doing it much more quietly than the last time. Of course, that um, you know, it doesn't. I mean, much more quiet doesn't mean anything because he's there. It's all being reported on, and the usual uh, suspects are, you know, are 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 welcoming his return. But I mean, he's made clear that he's going to maintain his um, his residency outside of the country, and and the truth is, everybody knows why that is, right? And it's to do with taxes, and it's to do with uh, basically having funneled millions of dollars outside of Spain into accounts that are his in other countries. So um, so he had a little trip to London. He went to a private club um, with some of his friends and now he's in San Chencho in, in Galicia um, to go sailing. And then he's, I guess he's going to go back. And uh, so that's, that's the king. Well, Hassel is still, you know, dealing with the consequences of, of, of basically expressing, you know, what the king has been up to. Um, and then in regards to Catalonia, uh, it's a quiet time in regards to Catalonia, unless you're really following the local politics, then you see. But you do see in Catalonia that, uh, like Puigdemont's party, which is, you know, Puigdemont is the exiled, the ex-Catalan president in Belgium. Uh, well, his his party is decomposing. That's clear. And and it could mean that we see a, a change in the local politics of the in, in different regions of Catalonia, which could be interesting because it might somehow begin to oxygenate the space and get us away from this you know, this space in which, you know, everybody's just defending their own no matter what they are doing, right? It's if you're pro-Catalan and there's a case of corruption against a, a pro-Catalan political leader, then no one is going to go and sit out and defend it, right? And vice versa, if if, if this happened to, to a, you know, sort of a, a, um, 
Spanish Unity Party, as they like to call themselves, you know, and 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 there's a case of corruption with one of their leaders, then all those that are against Catalan independence are going to be supportive of them. And I hope that this can break because, um, again, there is no real dialogue. There's just a conflict between interests and this population, from my perspective, humbly, you know, I would say that is just, you know, observing this political space that has gone completely out of control from the population. We don't have a say, you know, and it's a very tragic reality. And that's what keeps me most of the time in Canada, because it's still a pretty unlivable space if you're really genuine about wanting to be in 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 spaces where you can at least democratize the society. You know? and, pa- so and, and Pablo Hassel, his 27th, uh, 27 months in prison later, uh, it's already been established that he was, quote, unjustly convicted of crimes, in scare quotes, that violate the right to freedom of expression for insulting the king, ostensibly. The king that is a yeah. a, an, exp- an absconding criminal. I mean, just to finish, like my little contribution here, uh, Chris, if we... Look, until we are in live in societies where the person that points out the cor- that the emperor is naked, um, instead of going to jail, gets a medal. You know, uh, we are going to be in societies that are very easily to easily manipulable and that are being led into destruction. Right? And I mean, this sounds like wow, very catastrophic. But I'm just like looking at the things as 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 they play out. Right? Think about someone like. Assange, you know, you can like more or less the character, but the truth is, you know, he's enduring a nightmare because of revealing information that we all needed to know about how our governments work, right? The same is going to happen to the guy, to the person that just released the latest data. And yes, of course, we we accept it because the law says that this, you know, that these are state secrets and all this. But if we accept that logic, then it means we allow states to do whatever they want with the what with what they call, you know. Uh, general interest, right? So I think we need to rethink our societies and be much more critical when, you know, our king, in the case of Spain, comes sailing while we all know he has Spanish taxpayer money. And the person that denounces this is sitting in a, in a jail cell. So it's a tragic moment. Yeah. And in, and since we last spoke, and I think it's gotten all that much more worse. And the difference between Assange and this young kid that got ar- uh, arrested recently, too, whereas the, the so-called free press ignored the plight of Julian Assange, the journalist uh, publisher still languishing in prison. In this case, they assisted in the arrest of the whistleblower and purposefully uh, exposed him, not even accidentally like the uh, – uh, has been done in the past by The Intercept uh, on more than one occasion. Pablo, it's always fantastic to speak with you. Uh, I do look forward to our next talk. And thanks, too, to John Philpot and remind everybody of their book, Sanctions, A Wrecking Ball in a Global Economy. Pablo, they're going to be in Montreal in a couple of days uh, presenting that uh, book on the sanctions regimes and the damages they cause. You should catch it while you're there. I wish I was. Thanks, though, Pablo, for coming on, eh? Yeah, thanks, Chris. And I thank you for for being a space of resistance, of con- counter-conducts and, and of transformation, because it's spaces like this from which we can continue to, to speak with each other. And maybe over time, we'll see the societies we want to see. Yeah, absolutely. It's a thin space, but let's hope it broadens. Thanks again, Pablo. Thanks, Chris. 
Et pour vous personnellement, que représente le général Franco Pour moi, c'est un exemple vivant, euh, jour à jour, par son dévouement patriotique envers, euh, en service de l'Espagne. Et à part ça, euh, j'ai pour lui une très grande affection et admiration. Quantos millones y millones han saqueado y derrochado durante tantos años tantos miembros de la familia real. Luego los psicópatas que nos gobiernan dicen que no hay dinero para derechos de primera necesidad, pero tienen los años contados. Se acerca la República Popular. Está la historia de Juan Carlos el Bobón que quieren ocultar. Contar quién es y qué hace es delito. Apuntaba maneras cuando mató a su hermano Alfonsito. ¿Quién se cree que fue un accidente? Ni Maruenda imaginando a Rajoy desnudo cuando miente. Torrente es un santo al lado de Juanca. Ya denunciaron que a Sofía maltrata. ¿Qué legitimidad tiene el heredero de Franco? Que en juergas y puta nuestra pasta está tirando. Se ríe de su impunidad en un char en Suiza. Imagínalo borracho diciendo. El pueblo me dijo. Con la pija de su amante recuerda cazas de elefantes. Mientras aumenta el hambre y no hay justicia que lo cace. A la cárcel van los pobres, no la infanta Cristina. Pero medio país le desea la guillotina. No sabe ni hablar. No te callas. A mí no me cierra la boca semejante canalla.